Hey, welcome back to the room. We're going to get started this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue uh, in our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, this morning we have a really, really good text. Uh, it's all good text. I mean, it's all scripture. It's all breathed out by God. That's not what I mean. Uh, but what I mean is it's just one of these rich passages. And so uh, let me pray and we'll get started in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Father, we worship you. We adore you this morning. We thank you because you're worthy to be worshipped and adored regardless of what we feel or think or what we're going through. It doesn't change the fact that you're worthy. Jesus, you tell us that uh, if you be lifted up, that you will draw all men to yourself. And so we thank you, Lord, and it's our aim to exalt you. We gather here this morning not because we have it all together, not because we uh, are righteous in our own sake, but we gather as broken sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who are covered in righteousness, that when you see us, Father, you see the righteousness of Jesus Christ like a robe that covers us. So we thank you for your righteousness that covers us. We thank you that when you see us, you are 100% pleased with us. Though we sin and though we stumble and though we struggle, we thank you that there is abounding grace in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we are redeemed by the blood of your Son. And we pray in Jesus' name that we would honor His sacrifice on our behalf by living a life that pleases you in every way. Would you take your word this morning and would you make it effective at transforming us and speaking to us in the situation in which we find ourselves today? Go before us, use this time for your glory and majesty. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, Hebrews exalts Jesus in a really big way. You can't read the book uh, without seeing the superiority of Jesus. It's just all over in every chapter, in every way. Uh, Jesus Christ is exalted in this book. And that's really the big theme of the book is that, that Jesus is superior, that he's better, that he's, he's better than anything to which you could give your life to. You could give your life to a lot of things, right? You could give your life to your career. You could give your life to your family. You could give your life to relationships, to parenting, to uh, hobbies. There are a lot of things to which you can devote your time and your attention and your affection. But the author of Hebrews wants this Hebrew Jewish community to know that there's nothing more uh, significant, there's nothing more, uh, more better is terrible English, uh, sorry kids, but there's, no, <laughs> there's nothing better that you can give your life to than Jesus. He is absolutely superior in every way. And this Hebrew Jewish community that uh, the author of Hebrews was writing to, uh, they were tempted to go backward. They were tempted to fall backward into previous ways of life. Because they had experienced persecution, because they had experienced difficulty. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to a strictly Jewish community, a mixed community of Christ followers and not Christ followers. And so as he's writing, his main goal is to demonstrate to them that Jesus is the most worthy person that you can give your life to, that he is most desirable. Uh, and so in every way, he's going to compare chapter by chapter. Verse by verse, he's going to show how much superior Jesus is. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is more superior. The message of the gospel is more superior. It's better than the message delivered by the angels in the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament was mediated by angels. It was given. Galatians 3.19 describes that. There are several other passages that describe how the Old Testament was delivered by angels. Uh, And so the message of the Old Testament was relevant and good and necessary, but it was a shadow. It was a shadow. It was a type of what was to come. And it was fulfilled in Jesus. And the point that the author is trying to make is that the message delivered by angels was good and it was binding and it was important and it was necessary, but it pales in comparison to the message delivered by Jesus. And he anticipates or maybe responds to one of their questions in today's passage. Maybe one of their questions was, well, well, we know that the Old Testament was delivered by angels. And there was a sense of angel worship, angel fascination angel mystique that they were enraptured with at the time. But this message that we've heard, this Jewish community might have been saying, this this message that we've heard, we just heard it from people. And so the author of Hebrews wants them to know the uh, importance and the reliability of the gospel message that they heard. So let's read that together. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 says, Therefore, we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witnesses, witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, there's a lot going on here. And in true rabbinical fashion, the author of Hebrews is speaking as a a rabbi. And they would often string together long lists of arguments. And this was sort of an oral exam, right? They would, they would, how many of you have ever taken an oral exam where you have to stand up in front of a classroom or, or in front of a teacher? Some of you might think these family introductions are like an oral exam uh, where you have to say the right things. And, and uh, it's been great to get to know everybody in that way. Um, but the rabbis would go through this and they would often quote long lists of scripture. And it was a way of demonstrating their understanding of the nuances of the Old Testament. And so he would do this. And so he quotes in all these ways. For those of you who uh, don't ever memorize the chapter and verse in the book, uh, this is your proof text, right? It's been testified somewhere. And he just says, I know that somewhere the Bible says this. Uh, 
Uh, it's always good, though, to know where a uh, Bible verse is, what book and what verse and what chapter. Uh, those big numbers, kids, in your Bible are what? What are the bigger numbers? Yeah, that's right. They're the chapter numbers. What are these little numbers by that? They're the verses. That's right. Gideon, I know it was on the tip of your tongue right there, buddy. Uh, when you look through these passages, you're going to see big numbers and little numbers, and that was added much later in the text to help us get around it. Uh, it wasn't original to the manuscripts. Side note altogether right there. What do we do with this message, though? The message uh, was somewhat doubted by this Hebrew community that it was authentic, that it was reliable. They put more stock into the reliability of the Old Testament because it was delivered by angels. And so in the course of their temptation to backslide, to walk backward into a former way of life, in addition to that, they might have said, well, this is just a message that we heard from people. So the author gives four clear ways to trust the reliability of the gospel message that was delivered to them. And you can see it right there in the text. Verse 2 says, The message declared by angels was reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared, number one, first point, it was declared uh, first by the Lord. Number two, it was attested to us by those who heard. So that's the second generation of people that demonstrated the clarity of the gospel message. The third way, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And then the fourth way is by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now these are four reliable ways that the gospel message is trustworthy. You can trust what you've heard based on those four ways is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across here. And the important thing, you know, I always start my, uh, my messages and I have one question at the top when I start my, uh, my, my sermon study. And it is this, why should the listener care at all about what you're about to say? And some of you say, well, I wish you would answer that question uh, more often, but, uh, but why should I care about what I'm about to say? How does this connect to my everyday life? Well, the way it connects is, have you ever drifted away have you ever drifted away? There was a time in my life when, uh, when we lived in Oklahoma and uh, there was this uh, lake out near our house called Lake Thunderbird. Uh, it was actually nicknamed Dirty Bird, Lake Dirty Bird, because it was clay soil and everything you wore into it came out red. And whatever you got into the water with, it turned red because of this clay soil. And I, I remember being out there with friends and, and falling asleep on a raft near the shore and waking up way, way far away from the shore. And I had just drifted. I had just drifted away. Well, there's a temptation. There's a temptation in our life to drift. None of us set a course in life and say, I can't wait until I get way off course. Uh, it just happens. And it happens as we're driven by the currents of the culture. We can often say, well, that seems right. And we can follow a pattern or follow a way of life. And we can look up and we can realize... Ah, how far have I drifted? How far have I drifted away from the Lord? And how far have I drifted away from the biblical message? And and how far I've drifted away? And oftentimes it's unnoticeable until you're far off, right? That's the temptation. And so this is what's happening. Some people flame and burn, right? They they crash and they burn big time. And they they walk away in a a big dramatic fashion. but, But for the most part, for most of us, it's a slow, slow 
decision by decision, day by day, moment by moment, it's a drifting. It's a getting off course. And that struggle is real to all of us, isn't it? How many of us understand that we tend to drift? And so the author of Hebrews is warning them. There are, this is the first of many warnings. Uh, I think I can list them here. There are many warnings that uh, take place in the book of Hebrews. This is the first of many, and the warning is we must pay uh, much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. it shows that they might have not been as steadfast as they should be. There's another one in, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, another warning. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Isn't that an interesting definition of evil, an unbelieving heart? We'll get to more of that in a minute. Uh, they were drifting. Chapter 4, verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have fallen away or failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we must give account. Another clear warning. Chapter 6, verses 11-12 says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see the author of Hebrews? He's, he's prodding them. He's encouraging them. He's warning them. And there's many more. Chapter 10, verses 26-38. through 38, uh, Chapter 12, verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns us from heaven? So there are a lot of warnings, and this is just the first warning, the first indication that there was drift. And drift is common to all of us. And so the remedy is to pay much closer attention and to not neglect have you ever neglected something important in your life? Man, just look at my yard, look at my backyard, look at the condition of my garage, right? It's neglect. And it's not just things like that. I've been neglectful of my marriage. I've been neglectful of parenting. I've been neglectful of my job. I've been neglectful of relationships. There are many times, in many ways, that I neglect things. And the result of neglect is things get overgrown, things get out of control, things struggle, things fall apart. That's just the natural way that things happen when we neglect them. And if we see it in physical things like buildings and houses and garages and yards, what happens in our own life if we don't pay careful attention lest we drift away? And the warning for the author of Hebrews to the Hebrew community was, was this is important. You see, in, in, for all eternity, it doesn't matter if there are weeds in the flower bed. It doesn't matter if my garage, it may matter somewhat if my garage is a mess, which it is. But it's way more important to not neglect salvation, to not neglect the gospel message. You see, there are things that you can neglect in your life that will suffer and there's difficulty and pain and struggle involved in that, that neglect. But when you neglect the message of salvation, the gospel message Everything is on the line. So why should you care about this message? Because you can neglect a lot of things, but don't neglect the gospel message. 
Don't neglect the message. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. And if the Old Testament was important and it was binding and there was uh, consequences for disobedience to the message mediated by angels, then how much more the gospel message that was delivered by Jesus himself? There is a sense in which they are correcting. The author of Hebrews is trying to correct them. Are you open to correction? If somebody stepped up and corrected you or rebuked you or uh, brother, I, I see a way in you that is errant, that is drift worthy, that is struggling. Are you open to that? Proverbs 12, 1 says the one who loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is what? He's stupid. <laughs> but he's stupid. The author of Proverbs says you're stupid if you hate correction. That's Proverbs 12.1. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept instruction so that you may gain wisdom in the future. Probably the most important quality that you can have is teachability. One of the most important qualities, kids, that you can develop is teachability. Most coaches would much rather have a player... If they had a choice between someone who had raw talent and was uncoachable and somebody who was very coachable and had talent to work with, most coaches would choose the one who is teachable, who is coachable, who accepts instruction. There's a value to being able to accept correction. And there's a a sinfulness, a wickedness when you close your ears to godly instruction and correction. The author of Hebrews is correcting them and he's showing them in these four ways that the message of the gospel is superior, that Jesus is superior, he's worth giving your life to, and he shows them in these four ways. Number one, Jesus declared it. Jesus declared it. You know, the ultimate trump in any argument is just bring up the name of Jesus, right? It doesn't always work in all your arguments, but... But if you're arguing for the significance of a message and you can say, well, I heard it from Jesus himself. I was with Jesus himself. Can you imagine in the first century uh, when uh, someone like Peter would walk into a fellowship? You remember in Acts chapter 11 uh, where he went over to Cornelius's house and this message of the gospel was going to first go out to Gentiles and this Uh, Roman was wanting to hear the gospel and so he invited Peter who was uh, at Simon the Tanner's house and and so Peter made the journey and he walked into the room and he was able to say firsthand, this Jesus whom I saw, the one that I uh, spent time with, I knew the sound of his voice, I heard him, I walked with him. If the witnesses who were with Jesus Christ and watched his ministry unfold and watched him do miracles and listen to him teach and then were experienced persecution and many of them experienced horrific deaths, if they went to the grave saying the message that I heard from Jesus is reliable, then we can trust it. We can trust it. We can trust. We wouldn't trust it if they compromised. If if all of the disciples wholesale compromised and said, eh, "I don't think it was really true," but but instead they gave their life to Jesus and they gave their life proclaiming the gospel message that Jesus declared to them. Jesus first declared it, rather than a false attribution to him after his death and resurrection. Some people say that the gospels are just myths; that they were made legends afterward. Well, think about our own time. Think about uh, if, if a new 
book or a new teaching that surfaced by uh, someone like George Washington came about. Something that hadn't been reliable and vetted and trustworthy for the last few hundred years. We would understand that, that if it didn't match what he had taught, if it didn't match what he had lived, if it didn't match the other stories that we have of him, we're very good at parsing history and saying, this is a reliable, trustworthy account of the life of George Washington. Even 200 and plus years after his death, we can say that. Well, in the same way, there were people who were radically concerned with the reliability of Jesus' life and message. They were so concerned that they preserved it. They wrote it down and they was, it was authenticated. Listen, Luke was hired by a wealthy Roman Theophilus in Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. He writes to a guy named Theophilus, which means friend of God, Theo and Philus. Uh, this is the word friend of God. This person was just probably a Roman uh, wealthy person who hired Luke to be uh, the first investigated embedded reporter. He wanted him to go into and investigate all the facts. And Luke writes such in his first gospel. The facts, the, the lie, I've carefully investigated everything. And there's eyewitness details to Luke's account in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. This message is trustworthy because Jesus first declared it. And it's trustworthy because it was declared by his followers. The message of the gospel was declared by Jesus' followers. They declared the message faithfully rather than adding to it or embellishing it. One of the proofs that we have of that as well is that if people are embellishing the truth, they often do so to make themselves look better. And oftentimes in the gospel messages, we see the disciples, uh, we see the the first followers of Christ admitting their weaknesses and admitting their faults and and confessing their struggles and, and painting themselves in a realistic picture. And that lends credibility to the message. The third way that this message is authenticated is by signs and wonders. By signs and wonders, uh, verse 4 says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. We often discount miracles. Um, It is uh, often fashionable in theological circles to discount the miracles of the Bible and just to really tear out pages of the Bible or mark through sections that have any miracle in them. But biblically, there is a significant place for miracles. It has a a very important point. And the point is to authenticate the message. Listen, uh, Jesus would walk into a room and he would see somebody who needed healing and he would heal that person And while all eyes were on him and focusing, he would declare the gospel message. How easy is it for to say to a man, uh, pick up your mat and walk and go home uh, and then or to say your sins are forgiven. And he was able to do both. And so to show that he was um, worthy to forgive sins, he would do a miracle that would authenticate the message that he was about to to declare with his lips. And we're fascinated by miracles. Uh, I had a, a separation from a very close friend, very close friend that I had walked with for a long time. And the separation came because we were drifting into two different directions. He was working towards signs and wonders and chasing all over the globe any hint that God was doing something miraculous. If there was gold shooting out of vents, <laughs> right? Or if, if people were, uh, were being slain in the spirit and falling over, 
Uh, if there were, was this holy laughter was this movement in the 90s. Uh, look it up if you want a good laugh. Not, no pun intended. Um, there were all these things in which people are just rushing to the next thing to see God do a miraculous sign. All the while discounting the biblical importance and reason for signs and wonders. Signs and wonders often occur in places where the Bible has not been established. It's often done in a place and in a way where the Bible has not been established in a culture. You think about places where uh, we hear stories of the miraculous, it's often on the mission field. It's often in places where there is no Bible witness established in a culture. In China, in Iran, there are currently uh, stories of miracles, of conversions, of incredible healings, of amazing things where people are encountering the authenticity of the Word and it's being verified by signs and miracles. But listen, the danger is, the danger is in discounting the message and seeking the miracle. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 4, it is an evil and adulterous generation that looks for signs. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? Jonah was in the ground, in the whale three days, and then he was brought back to life. Picture of Jesus in the grave three days and brought back to life. That was the only proof they need. Listen, if you struggle in your faith to believe because God hasn't done a miracle for you, it is an evil and wicked thing for you to pursue miracles at the cost of the revealed truth that Jesus has already given you. There isn't a new sign that God can give that is better than the one He already gave. If you're constantly putting God to the test and saying, if you don't do this for me, I won't believe. It's an evil and adulterous and wicked thing to pursue signs and wonders while God is saying, I gave you my son and you want me to do a show for you? It is a terrible thing when people get sidetracked into signs and wonders and miracles. They are there for a purpose, a means to an end to authenticate the message of Jesus Christ. And when you pursue constantly wanting to believe more and to see more amazing things just to be entertained. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible trap to fall into. One of my favorite stories of salvation is a person in this room, and I didn't get permission to share, so I won't tell the name, but I love the story. I've shared it many times, many times. But this person was in Alaska and, uh, and was not yet really trusting in the Lord. But, but in this time, she saw in the mountains, in the snow, what appeared to be an image of Jesus. And it just intrigued her. This whole week that she was there, this image of Jesus in the snow, in the mountain, was just there in front of her. And she couldn't get over it. To the point that when she came home, she started listening to Christian radio and listening to, to stories. She, she lived 45 minutes from the church that we were going to and, and started to Google churches. And somehow our church came and she began to drive up to Warrington to go to church. And she began to explore the truths of, of Scripture. And one day she made, walked down and made a profession of faith. Now listen, the point I make in this illustration is that she could have been fascinated with that mountain. She could have been fascinated with the miracle 
vision sign thing that she had experienced. Moved there, sold everything, and gone to worship that mountain. Or gone to seek God on that mountain. But it was just, it was just a step. It was just something that propelled her to pursue and to authenticate the message of the gospel. If you're waiting around for God to do a miracle so that you'll believe, He's only going to say to you, what more can I give you? If the, if the Scripture isn't enough, if the testimony of your friends and neighbors and relatives, of life change in Jesus isn't enough, nothing more will convince you. You understand? You don't need God to... To draw on your bathroom mirror, right? With a finger. You don't need him to do some miraculous thing in your. You don't need a, a Maserati in your garage before you'll believe. I, I, I could use a Maserati in my garage, but, but I don't need that to, to believe in Jesus. He's given sufficient evidence. And he's made himself clear, he's revealed himself. The final way that Jesus. Jesus' message, the message of the gospel, the message of hope, of salvation in Jesus. It's authenticated through the distribution of spiritual gifts. Let me just unpack this for a second. It's demonstrated through the distribution of spiritual gifts. Look at verse 4. God bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And Acts is the greatest picture of this reality. Acts, the book of Acts, is the greatest picture of this reality. And the goal is that people would see how the body of Christ, the church, functions in a special and unique and supernatural way. Not because it has one or two heroes in the church. The tendency to elevate one personality is damaging and destructive. Listen, never put me on a pedestal. Okay, ever. I'm just a mouthpiece. Oftentimes I preach to myself in this message. I'm listening to God's word as he speaks it through me. And I am often under as much conviction as many of you or challenge or stress. Listen, this is not because I have it all together that God has called me to preach. Spend 10 minutes with me and you'll understand that. Okay, (laughs) people are often amazed by the grace of God in my life. God can be patient and tolerate a guy like that. There's hope for me, right? This this idolatry that we have in the American church to elevate a personality or a person is damaging. And it wasn't like that in the first church. It wasn't like that at all. The goal, listen closely, the goal was that people would see how the body of Christ, the church, functions in a special, unique, and supernatural way with everyone in the body Operating according to their spiritual gifts to accomplish a purpose. And that operation lends credibility to the message of the gospel. So here's what it would look like. A person comes into this fellowship. And as they experience the person who is spiritually gifted with radical hospitality in the parking lot. And as they experience a person who's been spiritually gifted with mercy who can detect when something's not right and they walk over and they put their arm around you and say, is everything okay? And the Lord just put you on my heart. I can see you from across the room. And, or, or somebody who is gifted with prophecy, which is simply saying a timely word from God at the, uh, to a person in a way that, uh, that is significant 
to their life at that moment. So when somebody walks up to you and says, man, the Lord just put this verse on my heart for you. And they share it. When, when that begins to happen within the body, we lose this identity of people and personality worship, and we begin to see the miraculous thing that God does among the body as you begin to operate in your spiritual giftedness. And when people see that, it authenticates the gospel message. The worst thing you can do is not get involved in the body of Christ. That's why we, we would love to intentionally keep a church fellowship small. It's always been our vision to plant churches and to grow to a point and to send people out, to be a sending station, not a gathering station. Lord, help me if we ever build huge buildings to make this an aquarium for saints. This body, in our ecclesiology, in our doctrine of the church, is that we would be a participating functioning, cooperating body of Christ where you have opportunity to exercise your spiritual giftedness. That lends credibility to the message of Jesus Christ. And when you sit on the sidelines and you don't participate in body life, you are shortchanging and you are removing credibility from the gospel message. Imagine if 150 of you all came into this room and were operating at full capacity in your spiritual giftedness. So the obvious question is, do you know your spiritual gift? Do you know what your gift is? There are three particular gift lists in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11, lists at least 11 gifts. A word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, Faith, which is the ability to see what is yet to take place or believe when things are difficult. Gifts of healing, which are abilities to help those with physical problems. Uh, Gifts of special powers, which are abilities to overcome circumstances or spiritual debilities. Prophecy is the ability to speak truth. Not new truth, okay? Not new truth, but revealed truth in the Word. Discernment is the special ability to tell right from wrong or truth from deception. Imagine if all of us were functioning with a level of discernment. Uh, gifts of tongues and special languages, interpretation of tongues and languages, gifts of helps, gifts of mercy, gifts of administration. All those are listed in 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, list prophecy, serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, financially, leadership, and mercy. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, give gifts of speaking and serving. Listen, if you don't know your spiritual gift, email me this week. I will pay personally. Well, maybe not personally, but I'll pay out of my church account. (laughs) My personal church account. How about that? I will pay for you to take a spiritual gift assessment test. These are similar to a personality test, but it, it, it measures basically three things. How has God given you a passion? That is what spiritually makes you thrive, that gives you energy, that when you finish doing it, you're, you're renewed and invigorated spiritually and physically and spiritually. Have you ever wondered how Jesus was able to do ministry all day? And then to do more ministry in the night? It's because he was, this was him operating at full capacity in his spiritual giftedness. I want you to operate in that way. And if you don't know your spiritual gift, I want to help you 
Go through an assessment and find it. It's a measure of your passion. It's a measure of how God has used you, how other people have seen God use you. And it's affirmed within the body. It's affirmed within the body. Oftentimes people will say, you're such an encouraging person. Not to me, but they'll say it to somebody else. You're such an encouraging person. Or uh, you have this gift where you just say the right thing at just the right time. All those things, the body will affirm how God has gifted you. Listen, we need to get into a position where the gospel is authenticated because you are operating as the body of Christ. Which is more than just an eye, it's more than just an ear, it's more than uh, elbow. It's just all those parts working in conjunction and unity that lends credibility to the gospel message. So that when a visitor walks in, they say there's something different about this fellowship. Something different about the way you interact with each other and forgive each other and are encouraging and helping and speaking and loving and praying for, holding each other accountable. That's the hope. Listen, the gospel message is very simple. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You were a sinner, are a sinner, according to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ bore the punishment for your sins. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in, in Christ Jesus. It's this, the simplicity of the gospel message. Romans 10, 9 and 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be, shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's the news that Jesus declared. And it's just as reliable today as I stand here behind this thing and declare it to you. It's reliable today. And all you need to know is the proof that lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. You could raise your hand in this room right now if your life has been transformed by Jesus. Amen? All over the place. That's right. And that lends credibility to the gospel message. Because it's reliable. And you can, there's nothing better you can give your life to. And that's the message of Hebrews. So Father, would you take the message and would you make it abundantly clear to us? Would you help us as a body of Christ to function in such a way that when people walk in, they see the authenticity of the gospel message because it's so unbelievably real and activated in our own lives. Would you make it so? Would you help us, Jesus, to live a faithful body life, faithfully operating in our spiritual giftedness, faithfully experiencing the truth of the word, Would you help us to shy away from this tendency to exalt personalities and individuals? And would you help us to focus on you as you work in our midst? Would you help us not to drift away and to pay much closer attention so that we won't neglect the message of salvation? We thank you for our time together this morning. We pray your favor and your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.